Find your seats, let's get started. I hope you're excited to be here. I'm really excited that you're here. I'm glad that we can all be here together this morning. We're back, like we said, kind of in the routine of January, and that's, that's all good. I don't know if how your schedule goes. I just wanted to share with you something before we get into today's message, and that's I don't know if sometimes you just feel kind of weighed down, um, a lot of responsibility or whatever, but um, can I just tell you that I've been feeling that way lately? You know, sometimes, I don't know why it is, I, I do this to myself, it's all my fault, but I take, I volunteer for too much stuff. I take too much stuff on me sometimes, and, and if you know me very well, I'm sure this is a real shocker to a lot of you, but, but sometimes if I feel that way, I start to kind of whine and complain and stuff like that. I'm sure you would never do that. But I, I, get, I get a little crabby, you know, and stuff like that, because I just take too much stuff on, and lately I have been, people that work with me are like, yeah, I know. So... <laughs> People, um, besides what I normally do, and, and, you know, contrary to popular belief, it is a full-time job, uh, I, I have signed on, you know, to volunteer to do some extra stuff. We have our Leadership Training Institute, and there's a new class that we're offering, but it's a class I've never even taken, so I'm taking it together with the students, and there's a lot of reading associated with that. Uh, a year ago, I've, I've got about 12 months in now that I have been studying Spanish on the side just because I want to, just because I think it'd be, it'd be fun. Um, bienvenidos a nuestros amigos. Amen. Uh, it's not a big deal, I know. Um, but I've been studying it. It's a lot of work. Um, you know, I do teach in our discipleship levels, and some of that kind of stuff requires a lot of time. I, I volunteered the last year to be on the board of directors for a mission board, and they have nominated me to be in charge of the personnel committee, and I'm writing procedures for a mission board, and uh, that's all extracurricular stuff. I, I have um, travel schedule that sometimes I get invited to go other places, which means I need to study and prepare for those things on top of what I normally do, and I just have been feeling the pressure. I've, sometimes I get overwhelmed. I can blame nobody but myself, but I don't know if you ever feel that way. Sometimes you just feel weighed down, and uh, kind of what, I, you know, I guess to be fair, I would say this, that smart people typically don't do that to themselves. You know what I mean? But somehow I find myself doing that. But what I want to talk about today as we get into Romans, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. We're right at the very beginning, and we're still doing introductory material even this week. I want you to consider this question. What about if God ever weighs you down? I mean, in the sense that God himself were to give you a burden to carry. What if you had, you felt the weight of some burden to bear that was God-given? What might that look like in your life? Here, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans introduces the whole subject, and, and we did an overview last week, but we're going to be in verses 8 to 17. And Paul is just, in these introductory statements, kind of still just sharing his heart, and, and he gives us some insight into his life and and. As we saw last week, Paul does not write the book of Romans as a theologian. The book of Romans is, is full of awesome church doctrine, and most specifically on the doctrine of salvation, maybe more than anything else, but Paul writes the book of Romans as a practitioner of the gospel. Paul writes the book of Romans as a missionary, and, and his heart as he goes through this is just to get this message to all the people, and in so doing, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a lot of unbelievable doctrine. Paul is 
sharing with us in these verses from 8 to 17 today a burden that God has given to him. And this burden, literally all that means is, the word burden just means that's something that you carry. We talk about animals, donkeys, a beast of burden, an animal who carries a load on their back maybe for you, a pack animal. But in the sense when God gives you a burden to bury, I want you to understand it, it's, not, it's not that it's a hassle like, oh man, it shouldn't be, but rather it's just a drive. It's a desire. It's something in you that you can't shake. God has given it to you, and now it's yours. And you have it, and you carry it. You can't shake it. Paul, like I said, he, he's a practitioner. Paul is giving us insight into his life as his heart is bleeding for these people that he, that he writes to in Rome. And, and Paul is motivating us to ministry. The introductory statements that we have here give us insight into his life. And this is much more than just history because the insights into Paul's life and his heart, again, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, should matter to us because as we saw last week, the Bible commands us to follow his example. And since we're to follow his example, we need to understand what it is that made him tick. And as he is introducing again this information, let's just read together from verses 8 to 17. You follow along as I read, and, and we're going to get an idea of what is going on in his heart as he presents this material. Starting in verse number 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, bond, faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's take just a second, ask God to just prepare our hearts to receive what he's got for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, again, wonderful time communing with you in our spirit and worship. I believe, Lord, your presence is here in a mighty way. Your word is powerful as always. My prayer, Lord, is that you would take this word and use this humble servant just to get it out, that you tune our ears to hear what you would have us to understand, and that you would transfer to us the burden of the ministry that we read about in the life of the Apostle Paul. I pray that we cannot walk out of this room the same way that we walked in, that we would be changed, and that we would understand the purpose for our life going forward. Jesus, we love you. None of this would be possible if it were not for what you did for us. So we thank you, and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. 
All right, well, the first thing that we're going to see, and it's going to come in the first several verses from 8 to 12, and the first real burden that Paul has is to establish believers. It's to establish believers. And the language of those first few verses makes it very clear that Paul has a burden. For example, in verse number 9, he talks about how he's praying without ceasing. In verse number 10, he talks about how in his prayers he's making requests to God so that he could have the opportunity to come to them. And in verse number 11, he uses the language, he says, for I long to see you. He is literally crying out to God with his heart's desire that he would be able to go and do this ministry. Okay, it is his burden. It is his heart's passion. So what is this burden? Well, in verse number 11, in the second part, it says that I may impart some spiritual gift, and it goes on and it says, to the end you may be, and here it is, established. Established. So Paul is the the model Christian servant. Paul is the model New Testament missionary. Paul begins this great doctrinal book with his personal burden to see young believers established in their faith. What does it mean to establish? Well, to establish is, is very simple. Literally, it just means to found permanently. Found as in the word foundation. To lay a foundation. Uh, to settle or to fix what is wavering, doubtful, or weak. That's what it means to establish, to set on a firm foundation. Well, you know what that is, don't you? We talk about that a lot around here. That's just discipleship. That's all that is. That's biblical discipleship. And if you've been around our church for any time, when we talk about biblical discipleship, it is not just a matter of going through some booklets and some lessons and getting some knowledge and quoting some verses, although those are fine things. What we look for in biblical discipleship are to establish three goals in the life of the disciple. We want to see the young believer's life established, founded firmly on the principle of their relationship with God through his word and prayer. We want to see the young believer's life established firmly in the fellowship in the family of God and through the local church. We want to see the believer's life established, founded firmly in ministry to the rest of the world. And regardless of how many lessons you go through, regardless of how much time you spend, if your life never becomes established in these things, you're really not on firm ground. And Paul's heartbeat is literally that they would be established. And he says that he wants to impart to them some spiritual gift. Well, what do you suppose that could be? I mean, what spiritual gift could Paul possibly impart? Well, let's not make it mysterious. I mean, let's just make it real easy. The only thing Paul could possibly impart is whatever Paul had, right? I mean, Paul's not God. Paul is not the giver out of spiritual gifts to you. Here, Preston, have a spiritual gift. Here, have a spiritual gift. I'm going to give one to you. No, I'm going to impart or share with you the gifts that I have. You ever wonder what spiritual gifts Paul has? Well, the Bible tells us what those are. And you can find those in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 7. You can find it written again in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 11. And there's three. There's three that are specifically listed. Paul says that I am a preacher, I am an apostle, and I am a teacher of the Gentiles. 
And so those are the spiritual gifts that Paul has. That is what God has specifically gifted him to be able to do. And so that's what Paul's ministry is all about. Like an apostle or a missionary, he goes about various new places, establishing believers, leading them to the Lord, starting new churches. He's a preacher of the gospel. He is a teacher of truth. That's what he does. That's what he's gifted to do. And that's what he wants to do in Rome. He wants to go there. He wants to find these young believers, and he wants to establish them to help them grow in their faith. See, it's more than just a job for him. It's a personal burden. It's, it's something that he carries. It's a load that's on him. It's his passion. He has to do it. By the way, we have to do it too if we're going to be obedient to God's command to us. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, right? It says, go and teach all nations. Well, literally, we've seen that word teach means to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because when you teach people the truth, you are making disciples. That's what you're doing. Paul says, I have the gift of teaching, and you need to be discipled. You need to be established. You need to be taught. Well, that's the thing. That's the same burden that we should have. That's the same ministry goal that we should have as well. How are these people going to grow in the faith? How is it possible that they would grow? Well, the same way any of us grow, the same way that anybody ever would grow. And that's through God's Word. Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 1. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read another very familiar passage of Scripture, starting in verse number 11. And we're going to go from verse 11 down to verse 16. You say, why are you going to read so many verses? Well, because from verse 11 to verse 16 is all one sentence. And I just think it'd be kind of funny to read half a sentence. So let's read the whole sentence. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some, now if you backed up and got the context, Jesus Christ is giving gifts to the church, okay, come from verse 7 on down, and go, he, Jesus Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. <sighs> That's a lot, okay? But it's not that hard. Okay, if you just took it down and just looked at it very simply, the goal of what Paul's saying in all of this is that God has given some gifts to the church and some individuals who have some specific gifts to the church. And the goal is, is that everybody who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ would grow up to full spiritual maturity. And as they grow up, they would be no more children. Everybody starts out as a child. You're born and you're a child, and that's fine for a while, but eventually you grow up. And it says that the way that you identify children is because children are constantly tossed to and fro with all kind of various random doctrinal teachings that are not biblically defensible. And all these winds of doctrines blow and children are carried away by these winds. And he says, you need to grow up so that that isn't the case. How's that going to happen? Well, you become established 
in God's word. You have somebody help teach you. You have somebody help you so that that would take place. Well, good news. Paul's a teacher. That can happen. They needed to learn. Well, that's what the word disciple means. A learner, a student. It's simply discipleship. Paul's burden for these people was simply discipleship, but it's not just discipleship. Because not only should you be established in the Word of God, you need to be established in the fellowship of the believers, and that's the next thing that we see, the fellowship. Because you go back to our text in Romans, and you see in verse number 12 what it says, that is, he goes on and says, that I may be comforted together with you with this mutual faith that we have together. You know, that's back in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 13 where it called it the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. Do you realize that's where true unity comes from? True unity among Christians can only come in the areas where we agree. (laughs) Amen? I mean, think about it. If you don't agree with somebody about something, you're not united. And I don't care how much you talk about unity, and I don't care how much you want to downplay the fact that you don't agree with somebody. At the end of the day, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You don't agree with them on some doctrinal basis. You can't possibly be united with them in that area, at least. Okay? And so that's an important thing. We're all going to grow. Listen, face it. Before the Lord, we probably all got a little bit of doctrinal error. We're just not, we're just not sure where it's at. Right? I mean, if I thought I was wrong, I would change. And as soon as the Lord shows me, and I've changed over the years. Trust me. But, I, you know, we've, we've learned a lot over the years. I'm not saying that everything's exactly right. I'm just saying that not everybody agrees. And true unity, true mutual faith comes of that faith that we share together. That's what he's talking about. In Psalm 133, it's a beautiful verse. Verse number one, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that's what God wants. He wants us all to be unified. And the only possible way we can be unified is if we believe the same things. The only possible way we can believe the same things if we take the burden of discipleship seriously and we teach people the truths of the Scripture so everybody can grow and understand the truth correctly. That's so critically important. And talking about fellowship, one of the places I love to go to, we talk about having fellowship with Jesus. That means that you have to have something in common with Jesus. Well, you ever think about that? What do you have in common with Jesus? Well, it says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10, Paul talks about how he, his, his desire is that he might know him and the power of his resurrection. But then it goes on and it says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And so Jesus suffered and ultimately gave his life so that we would have the opportunity to experience his life and enjoy it the way we do, and ultimately have the great prize, right, eternal life. And so, if we're going to have anything in common with him, we're probably going to have the fellowship of some suffering that goes along with that. That's what fellowship's all about. And so, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, for example, talking about this type of growth, that we should grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's goal for these people was that they would grow. He had a burden that they would grow. He carried a load, if, as you, if you will, that, that these young believers would not just randomly be across the countryside not getting good teaching, not having the ability and the understanding to grow. And it was literally a burden on his heart that that would happen. But that's not the only burden that he has. The first one is to establish believers. The second one is to 
evangelize unbelievers. To evangelize unbelievers. And that's the rest of our text. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. Again, the language in the text reveals that Paul carries this burden. In verse number 13, it talks about how he purposed to come to them. It says, excuse me, that he, but he was let hitherto. Little old English, the word let has several different meanings in your King James Bible, but in this case, the word let means hindered. So I, I wanted to come, but I was hindered. Okay, I was hindered. And it says, I'm a debtor. We'll talk about that in a second. And he says in verse 15, as much as in me is, we might say it this way, with all that I am, this is what I want. It's a burden. It's something, it's a load that he carries. What is that load? Well, he goes on and he says, that I might have some fruit among you also. Now, that didn't mean that when Paul made his way to Rome, he was going to have some kiwi. I mean, that's not what he meant, right? I mean, what's he talking about? Well, you know, the Bible defines all that. There are really two categories of fruit. When we look at the scriptures, there's really two categories of fruit, and, and many of you are familiar with this already. The first one is the fruit of the Spirit, and you find that in Galatians chapter 5 and 22 and 23, right? Where you have love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I mean, those are the fruit of the Spirit, and so that's an inward change. It's a character quality. That is something that the Spirit of God, when he produces fruit inside of you as a result of his life transforming your life, and those are character qualities that then flow out to others as you just behave a lot nicer than you probably used to behave, right? They're fruit of the Holy Spirit in me. But there's a whole other category of fruit biblically, and it's the fruit of reproduction. It's the fruit of reproduction. And you can go right back to the very creation account in Genesis chapter 1, when God on the sixth day creates Adam, and he tells Adam, and he says, look, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Uh, that, the, the phrase that they would be fruitful and multiply actually is applied to all of creation. I mean, it's applied to the plants, it's applied to the fish, it's applied to the beasts of the field. I mean, it's applied to everyone. It says that they're going to reproduce after their kind. We're not doing this Bible study today, but if you go to Luke's um, description of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it takes it all the way back to Adam, and it always says, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, and it goes all the way back to Adam, who it says, which is the son of God. So when God created Adam, Adam literally is a son of God. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with sons of God. That's what he's telling them to do. It's the fruit of reproduction. And this is the thing that Paul is talking about. Because he goes on in the text in Romans and he says, even as, that I might have some fruit among you, even as among other Gentiles. Well, what's Paul's ministry been about all this time? Well, Paul's ministry is all about traveling and evangelizing and leading people to Jesus Christ and establishing new local churches. And as he had done throughout Asia Minor, he has the desire, he has not yet been to Rome, he has the desire one day to go to Rome and to be able to do that very thing there. Now, I want you to understand something because evangelism, okay, now, listen, this is good. Y'all just clear off space and just look at me for a second. We looked at Paul's spiritual gifts. Preacher, apostle, teacher. Back in Ephesians, it listed five spiritual gifts. There's two that were not listed for Paul. Pastor, evangelist. 
Do you realize that Paul's spiritual gift is not evangelism? But it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 as he writes to Timothy, by the way, I don't think Timothy's spiritual gift was evangelism either. Because he tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, by the way, don't forget, do the work of an evangelist. You see, we hide behind the fact and we say, well, you know, yeah, but my gift isn't to be a teacher, so I'm not doing discipleship. Well, my gift isn't to be an evangelist, so I'm not going to do evangelism. Uh, baloney, I'm sorry. I uh, love you, really. But God, you know, you can, you can convince your, your brother, your sister, your mother, your friends, yeah, but you ain't going to convince Jesus uh, because he laid it out different. And he laid it out and he said, look, it doesn't matter. These are the things that I have burdened you. Paul has a burden to go and to win people to Jesus Christ. I like to think of it in this context. We, we kind of, there was a movie that came out and we use this term uh, off and on now. We, we talk about paying it forward. And that's literally what we're doing. That's literally what Paul's got going on here. He says that I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. That's just another way of saying Greeks and barbarians. In other words, Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles. So the Greeks were known for the great high-minded philosophers and great wisdom. So the Greeks, those are the wise. The barbarians, those are just the pagans that live out uneducated wherever. Those are the unwise. Paul says, everybody, I'm a debtor to all men. And you think, really? If I owe you a debt, it's because you did something for me and I have to pay you back. That's what we, that's what we know debt means, Right? Why is Paul, what, did, what did the barbarians do for Paul? What did, why does Paul owe any of them anything? Well, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. In Romans chapter 8, and verse number 11 and 12, it says this. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, in other words, if you're saved, okay, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. But Romans 8 is all about living under the spirit and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Back in Romans chapter 1, when he talks about being a debtor, he goes on and he says, so as a result, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. I'm a debtor to all man, and he's sent specifically to Gentiles. And he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. Now, don't confuse yourself thinking that the people who preach the gospel are people who are ordained and set in a particular office of leadership as a pastor or a missionary or that sort of thing. Every single one of you that believe on the name of Jesus Christ can be a preacher of the gospel to your friends. Ladies, children, it doesn't matter who you are. If you share God's word and you take the gospel and share it with somebody else, you literally are preaching the gospel to them. And that's what he's calling us all to do, that we would be preachers of the gospel to other people. He felt this burden in his soul. He felt the need to evangelize the lost. You feel that burden? In your daily life, as you go through and as you think about the people that are around you and all the people you run into and all the people you see and the people you drive past and the people you honk at, whatever happened, do you think about the burden that they need to know the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, this was a weight that he carried. He felt this. You see, I believe if you go and compare it like we just did to Romans chapter 8, if your life is led by the Spirit of God, you'll feel that burden. 
But if your life is led by your flesh, even though you say you believe in Jesus Christ, you're led by your flesh. You don't feel that burden. It doesn't really hit your radar. You don't even really think about it. Thank God for the other people that will talk to him. I'm all for evangelism. I'm thankful for those guys that do it. It's probably led by your flesh. So you might ask the question, how can I get a burden for evangelism? How, I don't, you know, honestly, Jeff, I don't want to raise my hand and say it in front of anybody, but I, you know, I'm a little weak on the burden thing. Uh, I, you know, I could, use, I could use it, I guess, if God wants me to have it. How do I get it? <laughs> well, I think the answer is in our text. Uh, the first way is to have an agenda. In other words, in verse 13, he said, I purposed to come to you. In other words, make plans to do it. You, you want to have a burden for evangelism? Why don't you just start by putting it on your schedule and just say, you know what, on such and such a time, I'm going to make sure that I go talk to somebody. He made plans to go do it. Uh, the next thing is his attitude. Because he says in verse 15, I'm, I'm ready. In fact, he says, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. He had the right attitude. And lastly, what we're going to look at for some time is verse 16. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to park here for just a minute because I want you to think about this. Why is it that we feel shame? Let's not use that word. That's very negative. Why is it that we feel intimidation? Does that feel better? To share the gospel with people. Isn't the gospel good news? Isn't it what they need? Why are we intimidated to take that to other people? Isn't that weird? I think that's weird. If you take the term the gospel and you define it biblically, there is no greater place to define what the gospel is than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first four verses where it defines the gospel as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And this literally is the definition of the gospel. Why? Literally, the word translated gospel literally means good news. And it's good news that, not that we're sinners, that's not good news. It's good news that while we are sinners, Christ so loved us, he died for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he triumphed over death and hell, and he has the keys of death and hell, and he's in on the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for us. He's going to prepare a place for us. If he's going to prepare a place for us, he'll come again and take us unto that place that we might forever be with him. It's the greatest news the planet has ever heard. We've got the best possible news anywhere, and we feel fear and intimidation and shame sometimes in telling other people. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the gospel is defined for us in that very verse, in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. First off, it is the power of God. Let's just think about that for a minute. Man, the gospel is the power of Almighty God. I did a little Bible study on the power of God this week. Okay, and you know what the summary of the Bible study is on the phrase, the power of God? It's, it's usually God doing miracles. So whenever God did miracles, okay, super, not naturally explainable things, only supernaturally explainable things. Jesus goes about healing the sick and raising the dead and, and, and doing all these things that naturally could not be done. They were supernatural. 
So there, I, I put one reference in your notes in uh, Luke chapter 9, and literally, it just referring to Jesus going about the countryside, doing miracles, and people saw it, and they said, man, that's the power of God. And that's what you see over and over again. And we see the gospel called the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved... It's the power of God because it's a miracle. John chapter 1 and verse number 12. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Y'all, that is a real modern day miracle. When Jesus Christ enters your heart and your life and transforms your soul and your old man has passed away and you are a new creature in Christ and you look like you used to look, but on the inside you are entirely different. This world does not understand who you really are. You are glorious. He has changed you. It is a miracle. It is the power of God. The gospel has the very transforming power of God. And the next little phrase is, unto salvation. So I've told my testimony here many times, and a lot of you already know, I was 21 years old, I was a college student in Arkansas, and I'd never been in church growing up, and I'd never heard the gospel as a kid, and I never had a Bible, and I didn't know anything about God or the Bible or anything, okay? And a guy knocks on my dormitory room door, and he shares the gospel with me, and I get saved the first time I hear it. It's amazing, and God began to change my life. It was the coolest thing in the world. Well, previous to that, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and I'm in school in Arkansas, so I go back to visit some of my friends back in Chicago, and, and they're unsaved. They're my friends from high school. And I was excited about my new life in Christ, and I started to tell them, man, you don't know, I'm, I'm saved. You can imagine what my friends said. They said, from what? And that's what you need to understand. Unto salvation, from what? Well, I gave you a couple of verses just to remind you from what. Remember we did creation and Adam and be fruitful, right? Well, you know the story. The very next chapter, God tells them, hey, watch out, because there's one tree in the garden. Only one. Don't eat of that one, right? And in Genesis 2 and verse 17, it says, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We compare it with Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. And we're not just talking about physical death. In fact, with Adam, the very day that he ate the fruit, he did not die physically. He lived hundreds and hundreds of years, but he died spiritually. And the Bible talks about that spiritual death in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8, where it says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, there's a list, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Notice, which is the second death. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save me from that. It saved me from that. We are all born with a sin nature and we are all on a path going the wrong way and Jesus Christ took my feet out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and set him on a solid rock. He gave me a new life. And it's a, tra- it's a miracle. It's a miracle. 
He saved me. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To everyone that believes. That's, that's the trigger. That's what makes it work for you. Okay? John 3, 16, right? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to believe. Acts 16, 30 and 31, I love this. Brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Could it be any clearer? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. It's just that simple. That's what you do. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is that maybe you've encountered this. You know a lot of people, and you can't look into their soul and just know if they're saved or not or whatever, but everybody believes pretty much, right? I mean, there may be a growing number of people who think it's cool to call themselves atheists or whatever, and, you know, they just want to kind of dodge the moral responsibility of a just God that will judge them at the end of time, whatever. Generally speaking, people that you know would still say, in our country anyway, yeah, I believe that, sure, but there's the problem. <laughs> they say they believe in Jesus, which means, yeah, I, I believe in the historical character that flipped our calendar from B.C. to A.D. I believe the dude lived. There's enough literary defensible evidence that it's a historical fact. I believe that he did probably that stuff in the Bible. I don't really know, but sure, why not? I'm not against, I'm not against it. Sure, I'm, I'll roll with that. That's not what they're talking about. That's not what he means by believe. You see, you've got to put your full and complete trust into that gospel, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, to pay for your personal sins. And you completely and totally put your trust in that as though if he doesn't come through, boy, are you in trouble. And so maybe you've seen the illustration. People say, well, I put my faith in this stool that if I sit on it, I won't fall down. So I put my faith, okay, I sit on it. Oh, there you go. Demonstration of faith. Maybe you do it this way. Say, uh, here's this railing over here. I'm going to put my faith that this banister will hold me up. It, it, it'll hold me up. And I'll, I'll lean so hard on this thing that if it doesn't hold me up, I'm going down. If I did it on this thing, it prob- I don't have that much faith on this one because, you know, we're going down. You put, that kind, you put all your life on the line and say, I believe that you did that for me, and I want that. Everyone who believes. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. You've got to believe this. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, but man, you know, they call him Allah or Buddha or Krishna or whatever. It's all good. <laughs> you go your way, I'll go mine, I'll see you there. No, that's not the right kind of faith. That's not saving faith, not according to the Bible. And the real scare is, Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7. This, these are sobering verses, 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. By the way, what is the will of the Father? Well, it's Acts 16, 30, and 31. What shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name hath cast out devils? 
and in thy name done many wonderful works? They're religious. And then will I profess unto them, boy, you don't want to hear this. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Do you realize that God is warning us? You young people, you understand that God is warning us that there will be people at the end of time who think they're saved and aren't. It's a, it's a guarantee. There will be people in that category. You don't want it to be any of you. I don't want it to be me. So there's a lot of people calling out, Lord, they called him Lord. But that's not enough. You have to completely put all of your life on the line and faith in him. If he doesn't do what he says, you're hosed, you're over, it's done. But there's no fear, he will absolutely do it. He did what he did and he'll do what he'll do. Listen, that gospel, that's awesome. That's great news, isn't it? Let me tell you something. You help somebody else understand that, my daughters hate when I do this. You'd a bomb. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, if you're older, that means it's good. You the bomb is a good thing. All right, so why? Y'all really, why would we be ashamed of that? Right? I mean, who likes bringing bad news? To, you don't want to bring bad news? You got to tell them bad news. Man, I hate doing that. Sometimes in our jobs and our responsibilities and our families, we have to bring bad news to people. That's no fun. Man, I hate that. But, man, I love bringing good news to people. Hey, guess what? <laughs> we got great news. And you run, you tell them, this is awesome. But sometimes we don't do that. Why? Man, we think, man, I don't, I don't go tell people about the gospel. It's crazy. Romans 11, or chapter 10, excuse me, verse number 11. This is good. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him, okay, you'll be saved, but if, if you did that, shall not be ashamed. Uh, don't confuse shall not be ashamed as though that is a command to you. It's not a command. Shall not be ashamed is literally, we would literally, when you read shall in King James, it's like reading will in more modern English. So, if, in other words, what he's saying is, let me just make it a little bit more contemporary. Whoever believes in Jesus, not going to be ashamed of him. True believers in Jesus won't be ashamed of Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Mark chapter 8, sober warning, verse number 38. Jesus speaking. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want Jesus to come with the glory of his Father and his holy angels and find you and say, oh yeah, you, you were ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I love 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. Verse 7 and 8. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the, here it is, power of God. The miracle-transforming, life-changing power of God. And he says, I'm not ashamed of that. That's the greatest possible news anybody could ever tell anybody. I was saved 30 years ago, going on 31. And I don't keep in contact with the guy who shared the gospel with me, but I remember to this day, like it was yesterday, sitting in my dormitory room and that guy coming to knock on my door. I, can, I, I remember the conversation. I remember the circumstances. I remember a mental picture of what my room looked like. Nobody has ever done for me Humanly speaking, what that young man did for me when he knocked on my door. Never knew me, didn't know who I was. I'm sure it was a little awkward, knocking on doors of people he didn't know. And my life changed. My life changed. And, and, and this isn't about me, but just fast forward through the history of my life, and I had the opportunity to see God start some new churches in foreign countries that didn't even have the gospel. You could say it's because that guy knocked on my door. There's two strong churches worshiping the Lord in Albania because some guy knocked on my door at Arkansas State University because he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. I mean, who's the greater Christian? Billy Graham or the guy that led Billy Graham to Christ? Right? You don't know who you're going to touch. You don't know who God's going to change. Why is sharing the gospel so important? Well, verse 17. For therein... The gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Okay, beside the obvious benefit, the whole eternal life thing for the guy that gets it, which is awesome. That ought to be enough, right? But last week we talked about the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is revealed and dealt with in a lot of different ways as we walk through the different chapters. And it'll take us a long time to do it all, but it's all about God's righteousness. And he starts right off talking about the gospel itself is the righteousness of God. And it says that it's revealed. And here's the phrase, from faith to faith. Have you ever read the thought, yeah, I don't don't understand what that's about. Honest, have you ever thought of that? I'm not sure exactly, don't be embarrassed. Well, me and Kale, we're the only ones. We're the only ones that ever thought that. The rest of y'all are awesome. All right, Kale, let me explain to you, because here's what it is. <laughs> From faith to faith. You know, I, I like when God leaves stuff like that, because it's kind of like, hmm, it could be this, yeah, but it could be that. Hmm, yeah, but it could be that. Well, rather than just guess, let's see if we can put it together, okay? Those of you that study the Bible around here, you understand that when we teach you some of the tools of how to study the Bible, that we help you understand that there are going to be three applications to any scripture. There's going to be a doctrinal application, there's going to be a historical application, and there's going to be a personal, there's going to be a practical or inspirational application of how it deals with you in your life, okay? And you've got to get all three right if you're really going to understand what God's trying to say. So let's just do that with this little phrase, from faith to faith. Doctrinally speaking, what he is talking about 
is that the faith, righteousness of God is revealed doctrinally, being transferred from the faith of Jesus Christ to your faith. And there's a lot of different places. We've looked at some of this before, but I just bring your attention to Romans chapter 3 and verse number 22. It's as good as any. Since we're in Romans, we'll just stay in Romans. It says, even the righteousness of God, there's the theme, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. That's our faith. So from the faith of Jesus Christ to our faith, and when that magic happens, the righteousness of God is revealed. Y'all, without the doctrinal step from faith to faith, we don't have a clue. And all of us are sitting here with masks on our head. We don't understand nothing about nothing if God himself didn't reveal his righteousness from the faith of Jesus Christ to our faith. You got to get that. But that's not all, okay? That's not all because there's a historical application. And the historical application is from the faith of the Jews to the faith of the Gentiles, right? Right? When it talks about not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. To the Jew first. Now, I don't think that the Holy Spirit intends to teach us that until we have taken the gospel to all of the Israeli population that we can, then and only then are we free to take the gospel to the non-Israeli population of this world. In other words, it's not a prescribed strategy for ongoing ministry. But what it is, it's a historical statement that from the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel went to the Jews first in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Until the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 immediately then there's a, there's a persecution and a dispersion and the, and the Jews are scattered from Jerusalem and they go to Samaria and eventually Philip is transported out and he meets this eunuch from Ethiopia. And in chapter 9, we see Saul of Tarsus who becomes the Apostle Paul and he's called to be the, 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 the missionary to the Gentiles. And the gospel just then from chapter 8, 9 and on through the book of Acts is going to go directly to the Gentile world. It's a historical statement. So the righteousness of God is revealed starting with the Jews and then moving to the Gentiles. By the way, that's always been God's plan, even through the Old Testament. But practically, and this is where we really live, isn't it? Practically. It's from one step of faith in your life to the next. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we walk by faith one step at a time. And we take one step of faith And then we take another step of faith. Then we take another step of faith. And when we take one step of faith at a time, you know what we're doing? We're revealing the righteousness of God. To ourselves, maybe first, as we see God come through leading us step by step, but to our friends and neighbors around us as well because they see it also. You might not think so. But practically in your life, what does it mean the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith? Because you could have taken a step of faith last year or or five years ago or 30 years ago and you haven't taken one in a while. What happens in your wicked heart and my wicked heart is we kind of forget 
about God's righteousness because we haven't really seen it revealed lately because we haven't been taking steps of faith. And that's the practical application. Kale and I just figured that out. <laughs> As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, that's a whole cool Bible study we're not doing today, I'm sorry. It comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. And, and let me just tell you, in Habakkuk chapter 2, it's quoted just a little different. It says, the just shall live by his faith. Okay, go home and look up that, okay, if you want to. The Holy Spirit did not miss a word. The Holy Spirit didn't forget. He, he, he left off his on purpose. At the end of the day, just know this. Let's just make it real simple. The just. Those who are justified. Those who are made clean. In other words, the just could just be an expression we just replace with those who are saved. The just shall live by faith. They, those are people who will live by faith. Meaning that if you have been justified, if you have truly been born again, if you've truly received Christ, your life is going to be identified as one that walks by faith. That's who you are. Okay? It's this external working out of this internal reality. So in Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 6, it says this, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. How should I walk in him? By faith. <laughs> Very simple. From faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you just? Have you been saved? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, God forbid, if something terrible happened and you didn't get it tomorrow, and there was a terrible accident going home today, and your physical life ended, that you are 100% sure that you have a home in heaven? If you're not 100% sure, can I tell you, it's not by accident that you're here today. You're here today because God knew that we would talk about this subject today. And you are here today because you need to know that it's not just I believe there was a Jesus, but I totally surrender my heart and my life and my will to him as my personal Lord and Savior. You can do that right now. We're going to pray in just a second. I invite you to do that. But a lot of people would say, I, I have done that. I'm so thankful. I, I do remember the miracle. I'm so grateful for what he's done in my life. My question for you is, do you feel that burden to evangelize the lost and to, and to establish believers? Do you, do you carry on your shoulders, do you feel the weight of needing to reach people and needing to build up those who have been reached but are young in the faith? Do you feel that weight? Paul did, and we're to follow his example. You think, man, I'm already weighed down. <laughs> Please don't forget what Jesus tells us. He says, look, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll, I'll give you rest. He says, my my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Can I just tell you, the burden of doing God's ministry, that's nothing compared to the burden you're going to have if you reject God's ministry. Can I tell you, you don't want to carry the burden of disobedience, Christian. You don't want to carry that burden. Trust me, it's not a happy place. 
Jesus' burden is, it's light, it's easy. He'll help you. He'll absolutely help you. Y'all, this is just the introduction to Romans. And God wants to change your life today. So let's pray together. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. And I want to pray intelligently, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I want to ask you a question because if you would just say, Jeff, I'm, I'm that guy. Who, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. We're not going to take a lot of time. But right where you're at, I would just like for you to raise your hand and say, just pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved. Please just pray for me. I want to get saved today. I see somebody right here in front. Thank you. A couple of young people. Thank you. Several of you. God bless you. You can take your hand down. I see it back by the pillar. Appreciate it. Upstairs, anybody at all? I see you guys up there. Awesome. Thank you for being honest. I just want to, you're not sure you're saved, but you want to be today. Anybody else? A whole bunch of people are honest before God today. Thank God for you. Maybe you're here and you'd say, look, I, I know I've been saved, and, and that's why you're here. You come to church all the time. You love God. You want to do what's right. But you know what? It's been a long time since you felt that stirring and a real burden of carrying a load. I must evangelize the lost. I must disciple believers. I have to do that. I want that burden today. Jeff, would you just pray for me? I need that burden that God would give that to me today. Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Just people that are already saved. Man, I need that burden. There's hands all over the house. Thank God for you. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you first and foremost for doing what you did to make all this possible and to give us the greatest news ever, the gospel. And Lord, I'm not ashamed of it, and I pray that we won't, any of us won't be ashamed of it. I want to thank you first and foremost for the honesty of many people in the, in the house today that said, you know, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. And, and I just pray that right now, Lord, in their hearts, in their own way, that they would just cry out to you. There's nothing magic about it, but just a full-blown surrender of their heart and ask you to save them. Maybe something like this, Lord Jesus, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm saved, but and man, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. I need you to forgive me, Lord. I understand that you are the only one who can. Please come into my heart and my life. Please forgive me my sins and give me that free gift of eternal life. And Lord, I want to pray for those who have already done that, but somehow or another they let the path grow cold and they need to feel that burden again. They need to get back to the basics of doing exactly what you've told us over and over again to do. Reach out to those people that are lost with the greatest news in the world and not be ashamed of it. And when we find people that are believers, do everything in our power to help them grow because that's, that's what you do and we are your body. I pray for all of these that said this is what they need today. And Lord, in a minute when we sing, I, I mean, maybe they just need to come down front and get on their face and just cry out to you. I don't know. But I pray that you would change us today. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.